at least by the prioress and prior. Without an adequate outline of a Fontevraud house, I have used my imagination to come up with a generic Tyndall, although I have tried to temper fantasy with what did exist. Since I made Tyndall a Benedictine house originally, and almost all single-sex monasteries of the period had relatively similar plans, I have used those generic designs for fictional Tyndall from sources, some of which are listed at the end of this book. The accuracy of historical details is one problem, but how to portray people, their thoughts and feelings from an era so distant from our own, is another. The fiction author inevitably walks a very narrow line between making the characters sound too modern to be of the period, or making them so different that the modern reader feels little in common with them. Yet histories, literature, and other written work from any era suggest that people have changed little in unspoken thoughts and feelings, although different language is used to express them, and symbols may have different meanings. We often judge people in earlier times to be more ignorant and less socially progressive than we, yet no insight bursts upon the world fully formed like Athena from the forehead of Zeus. As the writer of Ecclesiastes pointed out, there is no new thing under the sun. It is certainly true that a particular concept may be given wider or fuller expression in one period as opposed to another, democratic government is one example, but it is unlikely that the concept was absent in the minds of thoughtful people in other times. Nor should we be smug about whatever progress our generation might make. Not only is history full of dark ages following enlightened ones, but each era has its share of savagery. In the West we may no longer literally burn people at the stake for heresy, but weren't the blacklists of McCarthy a form of punishment for a heresy of the era? And how many examples can any of us come up with these days where religion raises some to greater compassion and wisdom while lowering others into ignorance, anger, bigotry, and even murder— just as it did in the medieval period. The medieval society is seen as a violent, harsh, and cruel one. It could be, and often was. Wars were frequent, life expectancy was short. The slightest illness or wound was cause for serious concern, although medical knowledge in the Arab world was quite sophisticated and vastly superior to that in the West. Sanitation and literacy were minimal, but certainly not as non-existent as many suggest. Torture to obtain a confession was not uncommon, yet the fictional Ralph's dislike and distrust for the practice were shared by many historical figures. Traitors were executed by publicly hanging, drawing, and quartering them. Religious as well as sexual heretics were burned at the stake, although some executioners tied bags of gunpowder around those to be burned so their suffering might end quickly, or garroted them prior to the burning. Indeed, each generation may have its unique brutality, but it holds its special mercy as well. Thus, period language, symbolism, and dated references aside— it does seem reasonable to conclude that some people from 1270 might well feel and react much as some do today. They might even have come to a few of the same conclusions that a few of us have. Some controversial examples in this book of such a conclusion, however, bear some additional discussion. Many of us in our middle years equate the life of nuns with Audrey Hepburn in The Nun's Story. 
However, most religious women in the medieval period not only were free to move about, but were expected to do so if secular matters, especially family ones, demanded. One prioress of Amesbury from the early 1300s, Isabel of Lancaster, spent much of her time not only outside the priory and family visits, but also at court and with friends. No one at the time thought this strange or condemned her for it. Nor were all nuns unworldly, and ignorance of secular life was not even considered a particular virtue. In fact, the founder of the Order of Fontevraud specifically suggested that a widow, albeit an upper-class one, should become the abbess of Fontevraud because she would know how to run a household and how to deal with both men and women more effectively. Eloise of the Order of the Paraclete, who was an abbess by her early twenties in the 1120s, wrote quite openly about her sexual feelings for Abelard, even after they both took vows of celibacy. She was considered an exemplary religious.